do is they're they're going through an experience that is by definition chaotic, right? And they're trying to decrease that level of that, that lack of clarity or that that sort of sphere of chaos and increase their 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 sphere of control, which is really what a lever is, right? Like what it is, can I? How can I do something in order to affect something else? And I think that's still true. I think as we've gotten more responses, right, from people reading the book and, and going through the experience, and we're working with more companies, you know, in, in the in the format of the of the, the bipartisan framework. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Amos Schwartzfarb and Trevor Bame, authors of Levers and tech extraordinaires and coaches, and there's a bunch more we're going to cover. For starters, did I get your guys' names right? Yes. Close enough. Well, let's start off with you for a second, Amos. Can you give us the 30-second background and then and then maybe tell us how you met Trevor? Yeah, sure. Um, from the Northeast, headed west after, after college, uh, not to pursue um, a life in entrepreneurship, actually to pursue quite the opposite, a life in the mountains, and stumbled my way into a startup in the mid-90s in Silicon Valley. And after moving around from Northern California to Southern California to Austin and six companies later, joined Techstars as an investor running the accelerator, the, the accelerator here in Austin. Trevor and I met, I guess it was about seven or eight years ago when he was at a different accelerator called Unlimited, which is an impact accelerator and quickly became friends and have been friends ever since. Great. Uh, Trevor, same for you. Yeah, not too dissimilar story for from Amos. I started as a writer and a musician, kind of anything, but you know, sort of focused on the business world. And I stumbled my way into into entrepreneurship first at an agency that I ran, and then a startup that that we launched, and then in a, a social impact accelerator that eventually became a part of TechStars. So I, that's how Amos and I originally met each other, and I worked at TechStars for several years and then and now at a, a separate venture fund that works in both early stage venture and small business acquisitions. So we have a, a holding company model of uh, a dozen or so small businesses. Cool. Well, you know, with the show, we get we get way too many requests. We, we would never be able to have everybody on the show who's trying to get on the show, right? And I, I am a book nerd, all the listeners, but I really want to hear from authors who have actually done something. We get we had a lot of people trying to get on the show. It's like, so and so is a consultant, and they've even worked. They've even helped Fortune 500 companies. They would love to share with your listeners, and it's like the same pitch. We get like four of those a day, right? And so, hearing about you guys having actually built companies that you're actual investors, in addition to just authors and teachers, I, I was really excited to hear from you for just like the little bit of background for listeners to understand like some credibility of like these aren't just theories. Amos, can you maybe start off with just some some highlights of businesses built companies invested in for, for a little yeah, context for I, others? Yeah, absolutely. I, I got my, my career started in the mid 90s at a, at a mail order company that this guy, Tom Shores was building out of his garage and he sold rock climbing gear and he needed someone to come and pack boxes. And it was quite literally, people would call him in his living room. He'd pick up the phone, he would write down an order 
and he would give me a piece of paper and I'd go into the, the garage and I'd fill it. And then at some point he got software and, and this, I'll give you the slightly longer version here and then I'll go quickly through the, there was a day, a friend of mine, this was 1996 or seven, a friend of mine from, that I grew up with, I was telling her what I was doing and she worked for an interactive ad agency in Manhattan at the time. She actually started it and she said, why don't you have an Earl and sell stuff online? And I didn't know what any of those things meant. And Earl was a URL. She helped us stand up um, an e-commerce site. And for those of you who have been around since the 90s, you will know that it was one of the first e-commerce sites, even if you've never heard of us. And for those of you who have not been around quite so long, there was a time when you didn't buy things online. So we were one of the first e-commerce companies, even though it took us probably 15 years to look back and realize that. And that company had a small but successful exit for Tom, not for me. I was not a shareholder in the company, but it sort of inspired me to realized that there was more to do than just climb rocks, which is what I had originally moved to California for. Lots of other fun reasons why I ended up in a, in a handful of other places, including hotjobs.com, which was one of the very first places where you can go and find a marketplace for finding jobs online, kind of like Indeed or uh, ZipRecruiter today. I then founded a company called work.com with Jake Weinbaum, who was the founder of business.com. At some point, we put those two companies together and we grew business.com and sold that company. I then founded another company called My Spoonful, which was uh, in the music space, long pre-Spotify and other online music discovery. We sold that company. I then joined a company called Black Locust as the second, the, the second outsider to the company. And we very, very quickly built and sold that company to the Home Depot, then started another company in the gaming space, which wasn't quite as successful. And then for the last six years, I've been investing in uh, companies via Techstars. I have over 100 companies I've invested in and worked with uh, hands-on. That's so great. Trevor? Yeah. So started as an operator, first in a, a more small business context, a, a design agency, and then and then launched a, a company after that, and then stepped into the to the investing space afterwards. And on the investing side, with both at TechStars and then in, in programs I helped turn before that, I invested in fifty plus companies, anywhere from super early stage to to Series A and and beyond, and. And then in my current world on the small business acquisitions and some of the venture fund side, we've the biggest company we've invested in out of Saturn Five is a um, company called Icon that just recently raised a two hundred million dollars Series B, and uh, and collectively our small business portfolio does probably about thirty million in, in earnings a year. So these are sort of small businesses that 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 predictably and, and regularly kick off cash. And the goal is to care for their employees well, to run the businesses well and, and for the long haul. Cool. Well, I'm loving the start of the book. And I gotta tell you the name. I think that levers is such a great name because I, I'm constantly talking to people about like, well, what levers are we going to pull to make this thing work? <laughs> I feel like I'm like, these guys, these guys like have a better version of what I've been saying. So can you jump in and maybe Trevor, can you tell us just quickly cover what the five, the five areas are? Yeah, absolutely. So the five areas are really five core questions or five parts of a framework that help you understand how the business works fundamentally. And the first is what we call W3 and it's who is your customer? What are they buying from you and why? Uh, then the second is how do you actually make money or what's your business model, which we think of as the, the revenue formula, which is literally the mathematical equation of how you revenue in the business and all of the activity that ladders up and down to drive each of those values in the revenue formula. The third 
is what we think of as in, in question form, it's what should I do now and next as a term, it's it's validating high priority assumptions. So these are the core things in the business that are going to kill you if you don't figure them out now and gives you a sense of what you need to go do. And that builds out your plan. Once you figured out what your plan is, it leads to the fourth thing, which is key performance indicators for in question form. It's how do I know if it's working or not? And this gives you the metrics you need to understand what to do and how to measure what's working and what's not. And then the final component of it really is this sort of accumulation of all the other four questions and it's what's my plan. And that gets represented ultimately in a, in a robust financial model that takes all of that different, all those different components, all that different data, and literally puts it into a, a model that you can use to operate your business. That's great. Amos, maybe I'll come back to you for this one. I, I had to pause the book. So even though it's not an audiobook, I'm just the laziest guy of all time. So I have like robot voice on my iPhone do text to speech, like like for the like blind people assist thing, right? It's it's like reading to me in in robot voice sped up. Okay. So I'm sitting there eating my Cafe Rio steak salad and I had to I had to turn it off because this very simple question in there I'd like you to weigh in on. I think it's the second W there, but it's it's not what are you selling, but what are your customers buying from you? And I think the profoundness of that question is very easily lost because the book was going fast and it just gets sped up. But I had to sit there and go like, yeah, what, you know, our, our holding company, we've got some different businesses and there's one I'm really working on right now. And I know what we sell, but I, I did not have a crisp answer to that. It would really challenge me. Can you, can you talk more about that question? Yeah. And if I, and feel free to like bat me into a different direction than when I take it. But you know, when I, when I think about it, my, my background in startups is largely on the sales side. At least if you ask people, that's what they'll tell you. I would actually, I would actually argue I'm not a good salesperson. I'm good at figuring out product market direction and ultimately product market fit. And I do think those things are different. I think of sales as like the, the repeatable functionality of, of, you know, dialing for dollars or whatever. So the, 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 what are they buying from you versus what are you selling to them? To me is that it's, it's a, to your point, a slight nuance, but an important one, which is no one cares what you do. What people care about is what you do for them. And especially busy people that are trying to run their business or their business unit or do their job or whatever it is. So the example that, that I use all the time, and I think it's the same one I use in the book is if, you know, if your job as a marketer is to go and find new customers, you don't wake up in the morning excited to buy search. You wake up in the morning excited to find new channels to get customers. And so if you're going to Google, yes, the thing, the platform that you use is a search platform, but you're not buying search from them because that would indicate that you're trying to buy the ability to search for things. What you're trying to buy from them is customers or research or leads or something else. So I think of the, 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 the subtle differences, the difference between what you do and what, what, what you do for me versus what you actually do. So what do you do for me? What do you do for the customer? Yeah. To me, I think it's, I guess the reason I was pushing pause is I think anybody in business, you know, any CEO can rattle off what they think the answer is, right? But like asking yourself, like, is that really how the customer would frame it? I don't think, I, I, I like, I, I think for myself, I think for myself, A, I'm going to get different answers from different customers, but B, I don't think 
my answer was going to be exactly what they were going to say. Yeah. I think, you know, that's one of the things that Trevor and I have both learned working with, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds and speaking with literally thousands of, of startups. Everyone's excited to talk about the thing that they built. But, it, but to your point, truly understanding what the value is of the thing that you've built, you can't really understand unless you've gone and talked to dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of your potential customers and customers. And as a little bit of a digression, one of the things that, that we really advocate for is in the long term, you might want to service lots and lots and lots of different types of customers. But in the short term, you're trying to find the similarities so that you can truly understand repeatability, which gets back to the premise of the book. How do you get to repeatability if you don't have repeatability in the things that you understand about something as simple as why your customer, uh, what your customer is buying from you or why they buy it? Yeah, Trevor, what would you add to all this? We see this play out, I think, really practically when we're working directly with companies and it, and, it, and it appears pretty simply, right? Somebody has an answer to the question and maybe it's aligned with the other team members or, or maybe it's not, right? And then the, our job really is to just ask, well, how do you know that? <laughs> like what, what data, <clears throat> excuse me, what data do you have, right? To, to demonstrate that that, that answer is true. And that's really where people start to get stuck, right? Where they're like, well, I don't know. And so then peeling back that layer of understanding, okay, who says what about what it is that they're buying from you really starts to generate some of that understanding and force to, to what Amos is, was saying earlier, force a, a greater level of focus towards a type of customer where you can really identify this is exactly what it is that they're looking for so that you can begin to understand how to speak to them about that and, and give it to them. You know, um, a lot of people are familiar with Clayton Christensen's book, Com Competing Against Luck, kind of the Jaws to be done theory. But do you guys know the guy he did a lot of that work with, Bob Mesta? Have you heard of him? I haven't. He's got a book that I think you'll love called Demand Side Sales 101. It says, stop selling, stop selling and help your customers make more progress. Okay. But it's, it's like, you know, one of my favorite guests we've ever had was when we had Steve Blank on the show. And, you know, how intense he is about customer discovery calls before you even before you even pick what your product should be. Right. I feel like you guys and Bob are like, OK, take that same principle of like, OK, you happen to be selling stuff already. Now let's really dig into how you're going to put pour some jet fuel on this fire. How you like how are you going to get this so repeatable and duplicatable that you can scale and and confirm that it is for the reason you say, like that they're buying for the reason you say they're buying and things like that. I'm, I'm seeing some head nodding. Tell, tell me where you weighed on that. Yeah, I, I think, I think, so the, the premise of W3, right? Who are you selling to? What are they buying from you? Why are they buying? I actually think it, ha it, it has like slightly different applications through the, through the entire process and hundred percent agree. Don't build anything until you have at least somewhat of an understanding of what you should build. And how do you do that without having conversations? You can use that framework there. That same framework gets reapplied when to, to, to validate that the things you thought you were validating are actually true and, and so on and so on. And I would argue that even if you're you know, a $50 billion company and you know exactly who your customers are yesterday, if you want to know who your customers will be tomorrow or even today, similar framework or the same framework would still work. Go out and talk to a thousand of your customers and see what they're telling you because their businesses are evolving just as quickly as everybody else around them. So I think it really depends on where, where in the timeline of a business it is, but it applies in all, in all ways. 
So I want to talk about this in terms of the book. So when you think about levers, right? It's, the book is a, essentially a product, right? When you think about what you think people are buying when they buy the book, I'm interested for, for both of you how you'd frame that. Trevor, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot. Obviously, we try to, to eat our own dog food to, to um, take ourselves back through that process. And when we originally articulated what we thought the, the thing that people were buying was when they, when they bought the book, we thought of it as control. So ultimately, what people are trying to get to is they're, they're going through an experience that is by definition chaotic, right? And they're trying to decrease that level of that, that lack of clarity or that, that sort of sphere of chaos and increase their, their, their sphere of control, which is really what a lever is, right? Like what it is, can I, how can I do something in order to affect something else? And I think that's still true. I think as we've gotten more responses right, from people reading the book and, and going through the experience and we're working with more companies you know, in, in, the, in the format of, the, of the, the five parts of the framework, I think we've put a little nuance to that, which is the, the thing that happens first, right? Before you get to that level of control is actually focus. It's figuring out what needs to be done and, and why, which enables you to have the kind of control that you want. Yeah, I think, I don't know if you're exactly asking this, but I think an important thing that I'll just add is that we, we Trevor said this, we eat our own dog food. We actually go through this process for ourselves every six months or so, because we want to make sure that we are, you know, we're, we understand what we're doing and also that we are reaching the people that we believe we should be reaching. Yeah. Well, maybe sticking with you, Amos here, think about the business that you either started or were like very integral to that grew to the highest run rate before an exit. Wh which one would that be? Bitprivebusiness.com. And how, how big did those numbers get? Or what? what uh, we, well, that, we sold that company for 350 million. We were doing, uh, we had an $80 million run rate when we sold the company. Okay. So can you give us a story of, you know, one of the principles from the book and how, how you think it helped you guys get that to the point of being able to sell it for 350 million bucks? Yeah, I, I, I can and I will. And I would say reflecting back, it, it, even though some of the pieces of the framework came from Trevor and Cody and Troy, when I reflect back on that experience, that I, we did the framework. We just called it different things because Trevor, Cody, Cody and Troy and I didn't all know each other yet. W3 was born in that company. It was the, the birth child of myself and Kevin Gaither, who was my director of sales. And, and it came from the fact that we had customers we had, I think, like in the thousand-ish range of customers, we were doing about $7 million in revenue, and we had been doing about that in revenue for about three years. So there was no growth and a high churn. So high, high, a lot of people on the top of the funnel, a lot of people at the bottom of the funnel. And the very first thing, and, and I took, I, we merged work.com and business.com. Kevin became one of my employees. Kevin, by the way, has gone on to be the first salesperson and eventually head of sales at ZipRecruiter and brought him from zero to over hundred million in revenue. He will talk to you about W3 in the same way. He and I looked at what we were doing and said, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? And we essentially just asked ourselves these three questions over and over enough and said, we should just call this the W3 because that's all that we're doing over and over again. And, and so I want to piece it all together for you. So we did that and it created this alignment on the sales team in particular. Where should we spend our time? Where should we not spend our time? How do we communicate in the same language? It also gave us the ability across the entire company, product and marketing, to all understand and speak in the same language and have alignment across the things that we should be doing. 
In parallel, we brought in a new CFO by the name of Brian Barnum. And Brian came from, he was the CFO at Rent.com that had been acquired by, I forget who, PayPal, I think. And Brian brought in the concept of the revenue formula, right? So not, it's something that we learned from him. And, and he just said, look, what's our revenue formula? What's the math equation of our business? Because I don't know how to drive stuff if I don't know what I'm driving. And so he implemented this concept of the revenue formula literally in parallel. So we were doing these things in parallel and Brian and I got along really, really well. And we, and without knowing it, we were merging these two things together. And then the third thing that happened is that gave us the output of all the things we needed to do. And that list was too long to actually do anything with. So then we had to figure out a way to prioritize the things and validate the things that we knew. And we used a different, a different method. I, I much prefer the one we use in the book, which is exactly why we asked Coda to be a part of it. But we used the methodology to prioritize the things we could do. And we were really disciplined about this fact. We will never have more than three, be doing three things as an organization at a time. Something didn't start, get work, get, wouldn't be started to work, be worked on until something came off the list. And we were really disciplined about that. Yeah. Can you give and us an example of what those three things might have been at one point? Yeah. At one point, we uh, we had to build a bidding. We were a search engine for B2B. We had to build a bidding system so that our customers could buy in the same way that they were buying at Google because we weren't going to reinvent the wheel. We wanted to make sure that we were doing something that they understood. So we had to build a bidding system. That was something that was important to us. In parallel, we had to build a categorization page so that when users came to our site, not only did we know what they wanted to see, but that we showed them the right thing so that they had an experience. We got paid when someone clicked on something. So they had to be served something that would be of high value to them, not just so that we would get paid, but so that they would say, this is a place where I want to come back for information again in the future. And so we had a high ret um, return rate because of that. And then a third thing was... We had so many, gosh, so many projects. A third thing was right here. A third thing is tied to the fourth framework, which is we we were, we knew we needed to be a metrics-driven company, but we what we weren't yet, and we weren't partially because we were doing too many things and we didn't know what we should focus on. But once we knew that and we knew where we should spend our time, we also had to build a really robust engine because we were a company of 150 people already where everyone understood what their impact was. How do you, how do you measure it? How can we be checking it in real time? And how do we really become a metrics driven organization? So everybody had their own personal dashboard that rolled up into the revenue formula, the master, the masterpiece. So literally those four things happened over the course of, let's say, you know, three to five months, they all came together. They, we went from $7 million and inside of 18 months, we're doing an $80 million run rate and sold the company. So everything clicked, bam, it took off. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah. Trevor, I, my question for you maybe about something Amos just said, do you have any thoughts for helping like visionary CEOs who have way more ideas than staff to execute them, like limit themselves and, and be disciplined? Because I think that it is, I think that is a common complaint of like, there's a portion of the population that's like endlessly searching the internet for, I need I, a business idea, right? And then there's this tiny percentage of the population that can't shut their brain off. They've got way too many ideas. And some of like, in fact, they have too many good, like they have tons of bad ideas. And then they have like a bunch of actually good ideas and they still don't have enough people even for the good ideas. Any thoughts on how to be disciplined when, when you're the boss and you can scatter everybody's attention in different directions and how to choose discipline? Yeah, I was talking with with somebody. This was several months ago now, and, and they they were sharing their philosophy on kind of the most scarce resource in in among CEOs or leadership. And they say typically, 
you know, people think of that as time. It's the only thing that you don't get back. They said, no, I don't, I don't think that's right at all. It's actually attention. Where to focus our attention is the most scarce resource for a very busy leader. And, and, and I think that's, you know, to your question of how do I choose where to spend my attention or time um, or energy, right? Given all the, the different ideas that we can get can be a really difficult question to answer. And, and it's one of the, the main reasons that we have that prioritization chapter in the book, the, the question of what do I do now and what can I do next? And it's all from, from Cody. So I need to give credit where it's due. One of our co-authors, Cody Sims, created a framework that really broke that question down into two components. One is what you think of as high priority and low priority. And then the other is validated and unvalidated. And it, it's simple on its face, but it's, I think it's also can illuminate a lot when you use it. So basically you go through a whole exercise of saying, what do we believe to be true, right? About the, the opportunity that's in front of us or the things we wanna go out and do. And you capture all of those on paper, you know? And so you know, we believe that, you know, the first best customer to target are small businesses that are doing between, you know, one and 10 million in revenue and have a need for uh, business automation. Uh, business process automation, or, you know, we believe that this particular feature, a instant messaging feature is going to increase conversion by, you know, 20%, or, you know, we should launch a, um, a dog, uh, dog park, uh, food bar concept, you know, in this town, you know, and it's going to create this kind of revenue. Anyway, you organize all that information and you get it all down on paper. And then you say, okay, now that we're looking at all of this, what do we think really matters? Like what is what's what sticks out to us as sort of most critical, meaning that if we're wrong about whatever assumption or whatever thing that we just kept, it's going to tank everything else. It's going to kill the business. It's going to have a, like a huge negative impact on other stuff that we're doing. Basically, where does the sort of highest level of risk live? And then once you understood that, sort of where are the, the highest priority things, then you can look at, well, for which of these do we actually have data? Which of these are we are we reasonably sure that we have data that prove that those things could be true? And, and then you organize according to that. So what you end up with is this matrix of things that are high priority, low priority, validated, and unvalidated, and in two buckets of work, basically. The things that sit in the category of validated and high priority, that becomes essentially your 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 product backlog, your execution list. Like this is the thing that you go out and do. You can, you're, you're reasonably sure that you can execute on these and they're going to have the kind of results that you want. And then you have another list, which is the most important, which is high priority unvalidated. So these are all the things that we think are going to matter. And we actually don't have any data that, that they're actually going to play out. So that creates kind of your learning backlog or the things you've got to go run experiments on and learn. So we say, you know, once you have those, your primary focus is on that learning. And then, and, and as you do that, right, as you do those learnings, you can begin to execute on the things that you already know. Interesting. Uh, it's funny how many of the best principles are simple, you know, like a two by two matrix like that. It, it seems so simple. It shouldn't be that useful because shouldn't, shouldn't like the really useful things be harder, you know, but I think for me, the hard part is like being disciplined enough to use it, to stick to it. To not, you know, give into shiny penny syndrome of like the newest great idea that I got last night when I was surfing the web. Yeah, that yeah, that's exactly right. And we say this in the book as well, is that like what we're talking about is not revolutionary from like a complexity 
or novelty standpoint, right? Like these are some of the most fundamental questions people have been asking since the beginning of business. Like what matters is being able to uh, sequence those in the right order and execute on them in a way that's, you know, that's thorough, that actually gets you the results that you want. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about this more in, in part two, but you guys, well, for starters, Trevor, why don't you tell us what retrocause.com is? Yeah, sure. So in addition to the book itself, we have developed a very hands-on training program or workshop that works directly with companies, usually a, a CEO and one other senior leadership team member. And they walk people through, it walks pe people through the core elements of the framework. So we're saying, hey, here's the book. It's it's kind of the whole playbook. We know exactly, you know, you get everything in that book, but if, if you want to work directly um, on your own business and make progress in each steps of those frameworks, we'll come alongside you and we'll do that together in the, in the context of a cohort of other companies. So you get, you know, a small group of people together and we say, we're going to mark, march through each of these pieces of the framework. And then we're going to essentially tear down everything that you, you, you create to help you make progress as you go. So we do that over the course of about eight sessions and, and, and a month long, it's a really 30 day workshop. And, and there's, there's video workshops that you're doing before you show up, you're executing on the work and then you're coming with that deliverable to get feedback on it. Okay. How much do I love that? It's not a two day seminar that you actually have enough time for stuff to sink in and get enough meaningful repetitions to make progress. Maybe this will be a good place to end for part one. We can, we can talk more about it in part two. Amos, I'll get you to weigh on this one. So even though most of my time these days is spent on our commercial real estate fund, I still do some of the CEO coaching at our management company, right? And it's just a hobby, like I love it, right? And I realize, like, even though it's fun to say like, oh, I advise people at Google and Intel and, and fancy sounding organizations, my favorite clients are the really entrepreneurial CEOs who are like actually willing to take bold moves after our conversations, right? So I'm like, well, I should be smart enough to ask for the kind of clients that I want if I'm still gonna do this for a couple hours a week, right? And I've been thinking about like, what's the hook point to get more folks for that type of service, which is different than what you guys are doing with the 30 days and the whole thing. I just wanna to talk to one guy. I don't wanna do any prep. We just wanna hop on and beat up whatever the thing is that's keeping them up at night this week, right? And so my thought for a hook point is I started a book. The working title is Special Ops Billionaires and Radical Self-Honesty. And it's just this like three-part framework I've been using for a decade of doing this work. And then it's very simple. And then it just goes through like kind of the main principles that I come back to over and over. So the 80-20 principle, the different Warren Buffett investing principles, lean, myelination and how experts become experts faster. You know, like, and, I, and I've got maybe like, 10 to 20 books on every one of those for like a suggested book list, right? And um, for me, like I'm coming at it from the standpoint of like, I just know that my fellow entrepreneur buddies like special ops and billionaires and I'm like really obsessed with it. I've got something unique to say there having advised them and being advised by them, you know? So my question for you, and again, maybe we'll continue this more on part two, but like when it comes to the three W's, what what's your first like, where would you beat that up? Where's your first question for me on being rigorous about my approach here? Yeah, I, I, I would start with W number one, which is help me understand who you believe and literally paint it like a visual picture for me of who you believe your ideal 
customer looks like, whether it's a CEO or whatever. Like, help me understand what that yeah. is. And then so, as you do that, I can ask you lots and lots more questions. About yeah. That. So yeah. it's pretty easy for me because I just look at my favorite. I love all my clients, but there's the ones that like, I feel like I think the same as them and we are so similar. So it's like, you know, maybe they're doing, you know, they're doing a few million in revenue. They're, they're founder CEO and they're like, they've got enough money that, paying exorbitant hourly rates to talk to me is a non-issue, right? But they're like, they're ambitious enough that that they want to do what you did and go from seven to 70. Do you know what I mean? Like they, like that, they're that level of ambition, but they're feeling like a little bit plateaued and they're, they're feeling like a little stuck and they just feel like, I can't really talk to my investors about this because they need to feel like I know what I'm doing. Can't really talk to my staff about some of this. They need to feel like I'm doing. I've talked to my spouse endlessly and they listen because they love me, but they're not like, they're not really there. I kind of don't want to tell my friends some of these things because just for ego reasons or for gossip reasons or for whatever, you know, they just, they need somebody who's like completely independent, but who has sued people and been sued for millions, who has hired and fired and raised tens of million dollars of invest. You know, they just want somebody like that who doesn't have any political dog in the fight, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't know if that narrows it down at all, but kind of like, you know, most of them have been kind of like, you know, worth a couple million to a couple hundred million definitely skewing on the lower end of that as a, as a portion. Yeah. So, so I would say what I'm hearing is a great start. So like if it were me going through the same, this process, trying to figure that out, I would start by writing all of that down vertically in a, in a list. And then in this conversation, like one of, you know, a couple of things that jump out to me where you said, you know, a couple million to, or, you know, a couple hundred million or whatever you said, like, there's so there's so much that's different between someone who's worth a million bucks or two million bucks and two hundred million dollars. So I would probably encourage you to think about what are the traits of the person you think you're helping and where do they really fall in that range? Because I I think that the person who's got a couple hundred million bucks is a, is a lot different in the way they think. So there's probably something in there to tease out, but not definitely. Yeah. No, that, that's such a valid point because. I've had some clients that are at the higher end and then again had had some billionaire clients that had the money before they knew me, right? Yeah. And it's nice, but they kind of like like they like me for certain things, but they're not like it's not a peer conversation, right? Cuz uh, they don't see me as their level versus the clients that I've had that went from being worth 2 million to 100 million while I advised them, but they're not done yet. Those are the ones that that yeah. that's a nuance yeah. there. That's that. That's an awesome nuance, right? So you've just cut out a whole bunch of people, yeah. Right? Right? yeah. And, and you think of like, and maybe we didn't say this clearly, maybe we did, but like one of the things you're trying to do is you're trying to get like the narrowest, narrowest, narrowest group of people, which for you, for entrepreneurs, is often a scary thought early on because you feel like you're limiting yourself. But really, what you're doing is you're creating the opportunity where the opportunity actually exists. Um, yeah, that's that's such a good point. Because as soon as you say that, I would say like, oh, you know what it is? It's like late thirties, late thirties to maybe fifty, hyper aggressive, probably have a bunch of ADD. You know, really trying to push the envelope and get something done, but they're like they're blazing new path, and they have a lot of anxiety about, am I doing this right? And they yeah. just they just need somebody to like explore all those deep dark secrets with. And get to a place of feeling confident that yes, this is what I actually need to do next. Yeah. Tri- so like, so it's so interesting, right? Just hearing from you, and I'm I'm actually reflecting on some conversations I've had with my own coach, who's who comes in from a more more spiritual side, which is okay. So late 30s to 50s, 
first of all, in there, you're talking about like two to three different, very different life stages. I'm closer to the, the 50 side, right? And I think about how I was in my 30s versus how I am now. My motivation, I want the same thing. My motivations are very different. My vote, right? My okay, I'll say, my I'll 30s. say late 30s yeah. to late 40s. Okay. <laughs> that 10 year span. <laughs> yeah. Still, I'm, four, I'm 48. What I wanted at 38, right? My reason for wanting to be worth, you know, a number, $50 million when I was 38 is very different than what it is today. I'm only one person, right? So I may or may not be your target customer, but I would think like maybe that's the right range. Maybe the right range is like, maybe you use that range to figure out the psychographic, which is what is their motivation? Is their motivation because they have a chip on their shoulder? Is their motivation because they have a, a, bad, a, a fearful relationship with money? Is it because they have uh, peers who have made it faster than them? Is it because they're always in the lead in, and now they're feeling like they're not in the lead relative to their peer group anymore? Is it because they've moved to a new place and they're trying to establish themselves? Is it because they lost money? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you see where yeah. I'm going? And I, I, I'm not trying to make it more no, complicated. No, no, no. I'm no, trying this to is make great. it simpler. Tre Trevor, what yeah. other questions yeah. would you add into what he's saying there? Yeah, well, one other way that we like to think about it is to that point of the narrow construct is to say, you know, if you can get to a point where if you could find this one type of person, right, like, like very specifically defined, you are like within you know, a couple of percentage points, you know, 100% confident that you can close that person, right? And so what, what is that type that if you're like, man, if I could find this person, I am positive, they would say yes, to this, this, this coaching arrangement. And then, and then the second question I would ask would be, okay, well, then why? Like, wh wh why do you have that level of confidence? Now I got to write that down, go like spend an hour with my phone on airplane mode answering that question. Okay. I'm going to, this is a great place for us to end for, well, maybe I'll bring us more questions on part two. Everybody, please go to retrocause.com and uh, check out these guys program. Go to leversbook.com and get your own copy. I've only just started it and I can already tell it's going to be great. Thanks guys for doing this and everybody tune in for part two. Thanks for having us. Awesome.